Then he remembered the dream. Then he remembered the dream. He was 17 when he had one. He was 37 when he remembered it. But dreams can be hard and lonely things. And a lot of mistakes are made by impetuous people in between who are simply unwilling to stay bored a little longer. To start with, can we set the record straight on Joseph? It's common when scholars read Joseph's life to focus on things that are not in the text and sometimes ignore things that are clearly in the text. And so, from the beginning, can we just set the record straight and say that the problem with Joseph uh, was not his youthful arrogance. The problem was the dream. When he told the dream to his brothers, they hated him. And they hated him because of the dream. And when he told his father, his father said, what is this dream that you've had? And his brothers were jealous of him. So when he went out into the fields to find his brothers, they said, oh, look, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and see what happens to the dream. So the problem with Joseph is not just his arrogance. The problem is his dream. He is like all the rest of us, jobs, families, ambitions, but he has a dream. And that dream distinguishes him from his contemporaries. And that is what causes all the problems. So we don't hear about his dream for 20 years until at the height of his career, after a long and circuitous journey, he remembers the dream. About a month ago, I was working through the life of Joseph in my private devotions. And that phrase from Genesis 42, verse 9, just stood off the page. I don't know why, people, because I read it enough times, I should have caught it. And when it stood off the page, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, can we talk about your dreams? So I started the conversation with our board at the retreat a month ago, and I'd like to finish it with you this morning. Every one of you, has had a dream. You had them or you have them because when you were a child, they encouraged you to have them. Dream big, they said, because if your mind can conceive it and your heart can believe it, well, then you can achieve it. So that is exactly what you did as a young person. You started dreaming of jobs and families, things you wanted to build, things you wanted to start 
things you wanted to write, things you wanted to win. Your dreams were ambitious and they changed over the years, didn't they? When you were in your 20s, you dreamed of prominence. When you were in your 30s, you dreamed of accomplishments that would set you apart. When you were in your 40s, you dreamed of positions that you would have and possessions that you would own. And when you were in your 50s, you dreamed of status and influence. When you were in your 60s, if you're in your 60s, you dream of retirement. You dream of margins. You dream of reputations, of somebody using your name in a conversation favorably. When you're in your 70s, are you in your 70s? You dream for your children, and the cycle begins again. So you do exactly what they told you to do. Dream and dream big. And this is a good and beautiful thing, people. It's a sign of a healthy childhood. It's a sign of a nation that is mostly at peace for you cannot dream when you live hand to mouth. One of the things we see in families where there is poverty is the child's inability to dream anything more than the next week. But I learned early in this conversation with the Holy Spirit that dreams are not the same thing as aspirations. Most of what passes for a dream in the American culture is an aspiration. These, as I say, are good and beautiful things, but they are not necessarily dreams. Aspirations rise out of the person's subconscious out of something we've seen in someone else or some kind of a longing that we have or some way when we get older and more developed, we will distinguish ourselves and prove ourselves to our contemporaries. Those are good, I suppose, but they're aspirations because they begin in the mind of the individual. But dreams begin in the mind of God. So you never really have a dream because you're supposed to or because someone tells you to. You have a dream because you run into it. They find you. You have aspirations. You receive dreams. And aspirations always inspire you to work harder, to be more disciplined and more accomplished in your life, to set goals and to accomplish those goals. But dreams, when they come from God, speak of things beyond your control. These things are too large for you. You couldn't do these things in a hundred lifetimes. For they require a power that is outside of you. 
Favor, maybe. Dumb luck, if you prefer. And aspirations always point to the thing itself. They never see beyond themselves. So the moment you have the job or you've made the income or you have the family, you got the degree, you wrote the book, you won the championship, your name has been used favorably. Well, you feel like you've accomplished the dream. But dreams always point beyond themselves. Because dreams belong to a story that is larger than oneself. It's the plot. It's what God is doing. So the dream that you have, big as it may be, is only an episode in a story that started long before you got here. And it's going to keep going long after you're gone. So when the dream is accomplished, it is God who is rich and famous, not you. And it's the people around you, it's the family, it's the company, it's the community, it's the church that's in a position now to go on without you. And when they speak and you're gone, they will not talk so much of your legacy. They will talk of God's promise. And they will feel like they're in a position now to do something even greater. Me? You? <laughs> How did Zinzendorf put it? Preach? die, and be forgotten. Now, it's clear when you hear language like this that it is so countercultural to the American dream. And I want you to hear me clear this morning. There is nothing wrong with American idealism within its boundaries. But you cannot mistake that for a dream. In my experience, in my conversation with the Holy Spirit, was that God gave me a dream and I covered it over with aspirations. and selfish ambitions. A lot of mistakes are made by impetuous people who are simply unwilling to stay bored a little longer. When Joseph was 17 years old, he had a dream. Can I tell you this story? I'm going to do it fast, I promise. That all right? and I'm going to get my steps in. I've warned the camera people. <laughs> if I don't, I'll get fat. So I'm going to do it left to right your way so you can see it as a timeline. 
When Joseph was 17 years old, he had a dream. Wasn't looking for it, wasn't trying to prove anything, wasn't coming from a deficiency. At least none of that is in the text. And the dream <laughs> was that he and his brothers were gathering sheaves, bundles, and all suddenly his rose up and theirs bowed down in front of his. I can't imagine that would go well in any family. And when he told them the dream, they hated him all the more. And then he said, I had another dream. I saw the sun, the moon, and the stars. They were bowing down to me. And the language that he was using sounded like it had royalty or kingship in it, which is a strange thing for a shepherd to dream. And when his daddy heard this, he said, boy, what, what is this dream that you're talking about? Well, he did not know. He saw something, but he saw through a glass darkly, but his brothers had heard all they needed to hear. And so when he came after them in the fields, they looked out and said, oh, look, here comes the dreamer. Well, let's beat the life out of him and see what happens to his dream. And so in the middle of their beating the life out of him, another brother Reuben jumped up and said, no, wait a minute. Why kill him when we could make money? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites who are coming this way. And then we'll tell daddy that he was killed by a beast and that'll be the end of his dream and we'll be a few dollars richer. So what they did was sold him to the Ishmaelites for less than $300 in today's currency. And back home they went without him. But the Ishmaelites happened to be headed to Egypt, exactly where Joseph would need to be. So off to Egypt he went as a slave, and he entered Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the chief of all the guards. And in the first couple of years that he was there, Joseph began to succeed more than all of the other slaves. And Potiphar noticed this. And so he appointed him to a position that was like second in command over all of the other guards. And one day this caught the attention of Potiphar's wife. And she liked him. She propositioned him. Said to him day after day after day in Genesis 39. Come sleep with me. He refused to do it, and she would not take no for an answer. So she reached out and grabbed him by the coat, and when she did, he ran out of the room and left her holding his jacket. Now she was insulted. So when her husband come home, she lied and said, he tried to rape me, and People, if I'm reading the story right, there was no trial. There was no investigation. There was no one who even approached Joseph and said to him, 
tell me your side of the story. It's just like the moment Potiphar heard about this, it's almost like he'd been through this before. He assumed that Joseph was guilty and threw him into prison. It was the second descent which became a promotion. While he was in prison, the Lord favored Joseph, granted him success in all that he did, and he rose to prominence. And the warden put him second in command over the entire prison, never worried about anything because he had Joseph there. So he went down to get up. And one day while he was in prison, a cupbearer, you know, baker, who used to work for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, were kicked out of their positions and sent to prison where Joseph was. And they met Joseph. And one day, the cupbearer and the baker each had a dream, and they couldn't interpret it. And Joseph noticed the look on their face, and he said to them, why are you so depressed? And they said, because we had this dream, and we can't interpret it. So the cupbearer said, can I tell you the dream? And Joseph said, sure, tell it to me. Well, he told him the dream, and Joseph said, well, that's easy. What the dream means is, three days from now, Pharaoh's going to come to prison. He's going to release you and appoint you back to your original position. Well, the baker liked what he heard and said, I had a dream. Well, let's hear it, said Joseph. And when he told him his dream, Joseph said, well, that's easy only it's hard. Three days from now, they're going to come to prison and get you. They're going to cut off your head and hang your body on a wall, and the birds will eat it. Have a nice day. People, three days later, like on cue, they came to prison. They got the cupbearer, put him back in this position, took the baker out, cut off his head, and nailed his body against the wall. Before he left the prison, Joseph said to the cupbearer, when you get back in the Pharaoh's court, you tell him that I'm in this prison. I do not deserve to be in this prison. But people... As soon as he got out of prison, the cupbearer forgot Joseph, never mentioned him. And for at least two more years, he sat rotting in a prison he did not deserve for a crime he did not commit in a country where he did not belong. Then one day, (laughs) Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had a dream. 
And he called in all of his wizards and magicians, and he said to them, interpret the dream. They said, tell it to us. He said, no, if you are who you say you are, you'll tell me what it was, and you'll interpret it. They said, we cannot. And on that day, the cupbearer remembered. <laughs> he said, wait, today I remember. <laughs> Thank you, Sherlock. It's been too long. When I was in prison, I met a guy who interpreted my dream and the baker's dream. And you guys, it happened exactly the way he said. Maybe he could do this. Pharaoh said, who is this guy? He said, I think his name is Joseph and he's probably still in prison. Pharaoh said, go get him. And one of the great verses in the chapter is where it says, so they went and got Joseph out of prison and he cleaned up and he shaved and he put on new clothes and he went into the Pharaoh's courts. Pharaoh said, I had a dream. All right, let's hear it. He said, I dreamed that I was down by the Nile River and there were seven fat cows that were grazing by the Nile. And suddenly, seven skinny, ugly cows come out of the weeds and they ate up the seven fat cows only after they ate the fat cows, they were just as skinny and just as ugly as they were before. And Joseph said, that's easy, but it ain't going to be easy. He said, the seven fat cows represent seven years of abundance there will be more grain and food in the land than you can count or measure. And then the seven skinny cows represent seven years of famine that will follow the seven years of abundance. Only the famine will be so severe that people will not even remember the years of abundance. Pharaoh said, what do we do? Joseph said, if I were you, I would find somebody and point him in charge. Make him head of the agriculture. And in the seven years of abundance, you should store up the grain in all the major cities around Egypt. And then, when the seven years of famine come, you'll be able to feed not only the Egyptians, why, you'll be able to feed other countries too. They'll be coming to you and trading their belongings for food, and you will become even more rich and more powerful. Well, Pharaoh liked the plan. So he said to Joseph, where might I find someone like this? Joseph said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> this is a great line. Pharaoh looked at his magicians. It's a great line. And he says, where will we find a man in whom is the spirit of God? This is Pharaoh talking. He has many gods. He speaks better than he knows. Then he looks at Joseph and says, 
I appoint you. I will make you second in command. You will rule the entire empire of Egypt, second only to me. So Joseph does what he told Pharaoh he should do. He stores up food for seven years, and then people, just as he said, the famine hit. And when it hit, it hit so hard that it affected the entire region. People came from other countries, and they traded their possessions to buy food. And one day, back in that tiny little village in the Canaan, Jacob, Joseph's father, when he was running out of food, it's another one of these great lines. He looked at his sons in chapter 42, and he said to them, how long are you just going to sit here looking at each other? Why don't you go down to Egypt and get us some food? So the boys, they run off to Egypt. Joseph's brothers, they run to Egypt to buy food. And they have to buy it from Joseph. Mm. They get into a room, and the moment they enter, Joseph recognizes them. But he ain't the man he was 20 years ago. No, no, the dream has matured. The selfish ambition of a brash 17-year-old has been beat right out of him. He recognizes the brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him, and they fall down in front of him. And they start pleading for food and then for their lives. And the Bible says in Genesis 42 verse 9, when they went down in front of him, then Joseph remembered the dream. Some of you, had a dream. And it got covered up because life happened. And the dream got tired, it got thin, or it got polluted by a selfish ambition. And you never noticed it. Until now, when you speak of your dreams, you, uh, you by default can speak only of your ambitions. But can I talk to a few of you at the end of this message right now, heart to heart? I want you to remember the dream. There was nothing wrong with the dream on the day you got it. It's what happened afterwards that we have to talk about. So here's my very short speech. First, 
You cannot manufacture a dream. You either have one or you don't. And you probably have one or had one. All you can do, people, is to sanctify the place where dreams are born. You can cultivate and tend the soil. You cannot produce the dream. You can become a more gracious and God-fearing person that makes it safer for God to give you a dream, but you cannot just make one up. Your tendency this morning is going to be to hear a sermon like this and to detect in yourself selfish ambition that has grown up and entangled itself in your dreams. And your tendency is going to be to walk away from the dream because you're afraid of selfish ambition. And when you see it, you'll say, I'll fix this. I'll just leave it. And I'll just do nothing for a while because then I'm safe. You will quit on the thing God gave you because you're afraid of you. But if you remember, weeds always grow next to flowers and they imitate them. So you will spend the rest of your life discerning a dream from a selfish ambition. You will never be rid of that. And that's okay, because you will surround yourself with wise and trusted friends who act as counselors, who listen to you, carefully weeding out the selfish ambitions from your dreams. You will protect yourself, and you'll protect your dreams by good counselors, and you will listen to them, but you must not abandon the dream because you spot selfish ambition. You say, I thought it was going to be easier than this. No, no. Dreams are hard and they're lonely. When you have one, it's not a picture of your preferred future. That's an ambition. A dream is a forecast. It's as much a warning as it is a gift. It is, as Joseph said to Pharaoh, God has determined this, and God will do it, period. Second, if God has given you a dream, you must persevere. You must be rid of the idea that people are going to line up with this. Dreams cause 
trouble. And they take long. And they make your life harder. They cause trouble because the moment you have them, they awaken the ego, either yours or your brother's, who become your competition. They take too long because you always underestimate the distance, the drama, the struggle that is in between the day you had the dream and the day you realize it. When God shows you a dream, you're looking from precipice to precipice. You don't see all of the descent in between them, and that's what wears you out. And so if you're not careful, you will give up the dream because of the resistance. You will tell yourself, if it is of God, my brothers should be aligned. I should not have to deal with friendly fire. And if it's of God, then I shouldn't have to put up with all of this. Wait for it, injustice. And if it's of God, then why do I have to deal with forgetful people who are thinking only of themselves? If this is of God, then God needs to roll up his sleeves and move this thing along. Hmm, a lot of mistakes are made by impetuous people who cannot stay bored a little longer. If this is of God, Two things are always happening at the same time. One, opposition, enemies, injustice, violence, persecution. The other, favor opportunity, courage, internal strength. And you must be rid of the idea that the only way for God to do what God is going to do is for all of this crap to end. No, no. Listen to this. It will happen your whole life. But so will the other. And your tendency will be to only see the one and complain about it. And if you do that, people, then you're not taking care of the place where the dream is born. It's becoming toxic. Your spirit, I mean. Last You must be, well, you might want to be a little more optimistic. Now, some of y'all are glass half empty anyway. So every time you descend into a promotion, we hear it, don't we? See, told you. Told you. So you might want to remember 
that when God gives you a dream, it's a forecast of what God is going to do. It is bigger than anything you can do. It rises out of God's mind, not out of your subconscious. It does not come from some longing or hope or anxiety that you have to prove yourself. It comes from a story that is bigger than yourself, and it is an essential link. And because it's a link, God is going to do it. You just don't know it at the time.